I guess if, if we've gone through 15 years of that, we've come out the other end and we've still got a half decent business, I think we're in it for the long haul. But gosh, if that's what's happened in the last 15 years, I don't know what's going to happen in the next 15 years, but we're, we're in, we're strapped in for the roller coaster ride. And um, we also love where we farm and being able to raise a family in that environment as well. G'day and welcome to the Humans of Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Ollie Laleve. I think this is episode like 140 something, which is just crazy. We started beginning of March 2020 and we've had a huge range of guests since then. I'm recording today's episode on Gadigal country. If you want to check out where that is, jump to Google, type in Indigenous Map of Australia. My next guest is Penny Schultz. She's a red meat and wool producer from South Australia, but that's the first of many hats that she wears. She also runs her own consulting business, is a university lecturer, an industry advocate, and just has a couple of advisory roles as well. In today's chat, Penny and I are discussing her journey, specifically around one of her key areas, which is the ag tech scene. We're chatting about its challenges, its opportunities, and in answer to one of my favourite questions, Penny believes that a key area that we can get better at is promoting and showing young people what technology and science actually goes into agriculture, so we can change people's opinions and perceptions so they can understand more about our sector. I'm going to jump straight into it. Firstly, Penny, what country are you coming to us from? Naranjari country. There you go. Lovely. Penny, you're a red meat and wool producer. Whereabouts is home for you and what are you guys growing? We are in a little district called Field, uh, which is the top of the limestone coast just off the Coorong. Yeah, sort of between Meningi and Canalp. And most people don't know where Field is because there's no shops there. So we, we don't get offended about that. It's a quite a unique little spot, very sandy country, but great climate for growing uh, sheep and, and beef cattle. And we're all sort of loosen based pastures and pretty hot summers, but um, it, we love farming there. And how much time do you spend there? Because I, I looked at your bio, you've got a few different hats that you wear between the farming, consulting, university lecture, industry advisory. Um, yeah, do you have much time to do much else? Uh, yeah, I'm not as hands-on on the farm these days as what I would like to be. Yeah, my husband generally has to book me in <laughs> if he needs <laughs> help in the sheep yards or for shearing or weaning. Uh, which, yeah, I mean, I'm fortunate when I am at home, I can work from home. So um, unless there's meetings somewhere else, I can work from home, whether that's teaching at university or, or meetings. Um, and COVID has actually been really good for that. Um, it sort of bridges the divide and forces people to use technology to, to stop me having to drive around so much. Yeah, because I see that you're lecturing at um, the University of New England. So yeah. pre-COVID, was that flying up there and doing stints in the classroom? Uh, no, no, no. So I, I was pretty fortunate. I, I started just a little bit of casual um, lecturing and took on a unit that was always external. So there never was a face-to-face version of it. But yeah, as as um, time's gone on, I've picked up a bit more teaching and I, I do go up there from time to time now, but a lot of it I can do from South Australia. Sometimes it's challenging to do it online um, because you've actually got to make more effort to be engaging because you're not in the room with somebody. Yeah. Oh, ahead of your times there, Penny, and everyone else was just playing catch up where you were just doing things <laughs> as normal. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. It forced us, it forced everybody to do things better with technology. Yeah. No, it's been um, a pretty incredible piece, I think. And like even just looking at how all the different schools, like my little sister's a teacher and how she, yeah, started teaching online and incredible. Yeah, for sure. And so has, has this 
little pocket of South Australia always been home for you or whereabouts did you grow up? No, I actually grew up in um, like a rural steel city uh, called Wyala, um, pretty infamous in South Australia because it has a big steel works. Um, yeah, pretty much lived on the edge of the saltbush scrub um, growing up. And then we moved to Adelaide. I went to a, an agricultural high school, which was pretty much up my alley. My dad grew up on a farm, but he moved into town with his family to go to school as well. Um, so it sort of skipped that generation. But I just grew my love for agriculture and the environment and science in general, um, going to high school there. Yeah, ended up moving back to Wyala for a little bit, actually, before I started the rest of my career. But it's a bit of a shock when people say, oh, so where are you from? And I say, Wyala. And they're like, really? Um, <laughs> <laughs> sort of renowned for, you know, iron ore mining and turning stuff into steel and red dust. Um, pretty, pretty dry hot place of the of the state yeah interesting place and so your old man wasn't on the farm but i'm guessing grandparents were in that generation yeah yeah so they were originally from from the mid-north of of south australia my dad and and his family moved around a a few farms before they moved into the city to skip skip that generation but now dad gets to relive his childhood on our farm now that he's retired he comes and um works for us um oh yeah it is for free but we pay him in chops and beer (laughs) pretty much um and um yeah he comes and and um drives the tractor and checks stock and stuff for us when when we need him unreal there you go the the true economy (laughs) exactly yeah trade and barter do you do you remember like your an early memory of ag that really started to ignite this love for you as a child oh gosh yeah not not super early no um yeah sort of visiting the odd cousin in mid-north but I I guess I didn't really understand it then to get that buzz it wasn't until I went to to high school till I actually got hands-on and studied agriculture and realised just how science-based it was. I guess I didn't see agriculture as, as a science as a child. And, yeah, when you actually learn it at school and, and with your peers, it really is. It's a very science-based sector. And so this might be a really silly question, but in terms of an ag high school, does it um, mean that agriculture is like a compulsory subject for all students or how does it work? Yeah, it was compulsory up to year 10 and then year 11 and year 12, you could choose to continue on that pathway or, um, or yeah, do whatever subjects you wanted. I was, um, I was looking at your resume and it seems like if you look at it, it's like there's absolutely no doubt that Penny was going to end up in ag. Was it the obvious choice for you out of uh, high school to go straight into an ag science degree? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, the funny thing was, you know, when you choose your your um, courses for university, the, the ones at the bottom were um, commerce and engineering. Like if I didn't get into agriculture, I was going to be an engineer or an, or an accountant. So that that's quite funny. Um, yeah, <laughs> no, I always knew like coming out, I thought that is where I want to be. And I sort of didn't really have a backup plan. There was so much opportunity anyway. So many different avenues you could go down in agriculture. It's, it was just a starting point going to university. And do you remember what like the aspirations were in terms of what career you kind of envisaged yourself wanting to go down? I actually did a major in animal science, but thought I wanted to be an agronomist, and 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 I was for a while. Um, I went down a, a pathway 
of pasture agronomy. So I worked mainly with um, dairy farmers, which was pretty cool. But when I finished uni, um, despite there being quite a bit of opportunity and buzz around agriculture, it was a, a drought year. And a lot of the um, bigger companies that normally took on graduates cut back a lot of their programs because there wasn't much money around. So I actually went and worked on a fish farm <laughs> for a while. And then as things improved and all the jobs popped back up again, I um, applied for a couple and got a job as an agronomist um, in Victoria. What was it like working in those kind of, I'll say, non-traditional industries, but in, you were thinking of going down pasture agronomy path, but then working in the the fish side of things and, and also <laughs> yeah. dairy like yeah oh um well I'd actually um from a dairy perspective when I even by the time I'd finished university I'd worked in uh, a few dairies including the one on, at our university milking cows on weekends and um when I wasn't at uni yeah and then I applied for this this fish farm job which was back in Wyala so I had you know a little bit of familiarity and I'd grown up fishing and camping and stuff in that area and yeah, because I'd actually done animal science. I had done meat production at university and um, there was a, a professor, Wayne Pitchford, and he used to teach us about feed conversion ratios and growth rates and things like that and you know, being efficient. And that's exactly what the job was. But instead of you know having um, cattle in a feedlot pen, it was fish in a sea cage. <laughs> and so it was exactly the same principles, like you just transfer your skills over and... Um, and learn about fish nutrition and fish health along the way. And, um, yeah, it was a steep learning curve. But, it, yeah, it was it was a bit of a hoot, actually, um, being able to go out on the water and participate in research. So we were farming um, kingfish, and it was a very new industry at the time and almost a bit of an experiment in itself. Um, yeah, so it was pretty pretty good fun to be part of that. That's unreal. Not a good job if you get seasick. Or, like, are they far offshore, the pens? Not too far, I guess. And and it was in the top of the Spencer Gulf, which is, I suppose, reasonably sheltered as far as sea goes. Um, but, yeah, I do remember some of the guys that used to work on the farm, like if I had to go out in the water, they would try their best to try and make me seasick. But I was, <laughs> some people just don't get seasick, right? That was me. So The joke's on them. So yeah. what were some of these stepping stones that you you had because I think we'll get to the part of your career which you're in now which is really around innovation and that side but you kind of weaved your way through a little bit picking up some studies different roles what were they yeah yeah I guess that's the good thing about ag I reckon is that it's it's not set in stone it's not prescriptive you can you know the the term in technology development is like being agile right and i think careers in ag you can be agile and and change and build skills and 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 take up opportunities and yeah i worked as a pastoral agronomist across a couple of states actually and i decided oh well i don't really like this like i was looking at all the agronomists that i used to work with and network with and they just lived and breathed it and i'm like i i I'm, i don't get it <laughs> i'm clearly not one of those and so I decided to change jobs and um, take on a bit more um, study, which was through UNE, and ended up doing my master's degree in, in science and, um, yeah, took on a lot more livestock subjects and I just absolutely loved it. So I ended up working in dairy extension for a while, both for the department and then started my own business as well. And then when I started my own business, I was able to branch out 
into um, beef and sheep work as well, not just dairy. But, um, yeah, I loved technology and I loved genetics, um, which, funnily enough, when I first went to university as an as a undergrad, I hated genetics. So what was the driver between, behind setting up your own business and your own consulting? Like, What was the type of work that you were really trying to get into there? Um, some of it was necessity, to be honest. Like, um, uh, like with a lot of... Um, Government extension services over the years have um, disappeared. Uh, you know, governments aren't investing so much into that space and there was quite a few of us going out on our own to, to do that. Um, I was also by then married in 2008. I married my husband, Jason, and um, we started farming with him and, um, and also my mother-in-law. We are in business together. And so you can't move then right you can't move the farm like I moved to Victoria or Wyala to go fish farming um, you then have and I also started a family in 2012 and so you then have to create your own opportunities and almost create your own jobs because if you can't move to take up those opportunities well I'll just create my own where I am and so that sort of was the catalyst really to start my own business in 2012 um, so I could still keep working and still doing the things that I liked, um, but just in a different way. Did you find that hard to create your own opportunities and start to get a bit of momentum through your own business? Um, to be honest, no, that there was a bit of opportunity there, uh, but um, I, I was super scared, super worried um, that no one was going to use me as a consultant, no one's going to use me to do stuff. Um, and... Um, you know, that sort of imposter syndrome where you sort of think, um, am I good enough to be employed in my own right to deliver a project? Or um, Yeah, so it took me a year or two to get my feet and confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, yeah, then I realised that was probably a little bit silly, but I, I think we all go through that starting our own businesses or ventures or, um, you know, even as um, entrepreneurs as well, like taking that leap to just have a crack yourself, um, particularly if money's on the line too, right? You've got to still earn money so mm. that you can, um, look after your family or pay off your house or you know whatever it happens to be. So there's always risks involved in starting your own business or venture. And so how did you kind of back yourself up? And, and this is a part that's kind of really interesting for me at the moment is like early stage when you're out on your own is the nearly like the second guessing that comes into it. Were you crystal clear in what you were trying to do or did you kind of jump and weave and dodge and duck and everything else in those early stages? Yeah, yeah, I did jump and weave a bit. <laughs> um, I, I had a couple of good mentors, um, yep. one probably a more formal mentor that I picked, um, picked up and, you know, stopped and then picked up again with over over the years um and um she's been invaluable and then you have your sort of unofficial mentors that who may not even know they are <laughs> um and i think that is absolutely paramount to have whether you're starting up your own business or you know working for somebody else i think having um those sort of people around you is yeah, you have to. I think you really have to. It's, it's really hard to go it alone. And, and also surrounding yourself with similar people with similar goals and aspirations makes it much easier. And they always say, you know, it's hard to fly like an 
fly like an eagle when you're surrounded by turkeys. So I think that's the saying. So you've got to then surround yourself with eagles, right, not turkeys, so that you can, um, yeah, feel supported and be able to talk to people and have a network. Yeah, and so where did you find your eagles? Um, uh, Yeah, I'm not sure if I intentionally went out to do it, but um, I'm a member of a couple of rural women's networks Mm -hmm. um, and been involved with um, my local farmer organisation and also people that I'd worked with in the past. So you try and keep all those networks and contacts going you never know when you need those people that you used to work with or want to work with. In 2014, I was, I was fortunate, and the timing was pretty good, um, to win the SA Rural Women's Award. Oh, cool. Congratulations. Yeah. Oh, thanks. <laughs> it was a little while ago now. It, it gave me some confidence and got me in, in touch with some amazing women both in in South Australia and, and elsewhere. Yeah, and sort of kick-started a, a few things as well. That's cool. Yeah. And so when did you start to fall down this path of um, like the ag tech side? Like I know, so you you studied your master's, had a, you've got a family, you've got your consulting business, and then you decide to go back and do a bit of further study in terms yeah. of a PhD. Yeah. Um, just yeah, things were quieting down a bit, were they, at, at that stage? <laughs> yeah, didn't have enough to do, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, look, I, I mean, I think I've always had a bit of a, a love of technology and new stuff. Um, my mum worked in IT, actually. She was a IT manager. Yeah, I think in that um, extension work that I had been doing for quite some time, like the whole point is taking the latest research and innovation and trying to communicate that to farmers. So I was forever seeing the, the new stuff that was that was coming in, and there seemed to be this you know phenomena happening, which was happening right across the board, not just in, in agriculture, of turning things into apps. Because oh, if we turn it into an app, you know, farmers will then use it. People will then use it because it'd be easier to use if we just turn this thing into like an app on somebody's phone. It'll make it easier to use, which isn't always the case. But yeah, so it was like this this trend of of what was happening and. Just in general, farmers are being hit with, um, you know, new ways of collecting information and apps to fix things or um, calculate things. And it, we're almost like being bombarded as a sector um, and uh, not always good things. So, you know, once bitten, twice shy as, as farmers were being provided with new technology, a lot of them weren't sort of hitting the mark and it, and it was starting to bug me. So... Mm. I thought, well, um, maybe there's something in this. Maybe we can learn from this and and set something up. So if tech developers do want to build new apps or tools for farmers, they've got a process to go through to help them be more successful and build things that are more useful and relevant to farmers. And, you know, that's where the PhD started. It's so interesting, isn't it? Because, like, I remember I was helping a mate out for a little while with um was either grain harvest or rice harvest, one of them. Um, and there was like nine different apps that they were running at the time. There was like the to-do list. There was a trucking app. There was the tractor app. There was the livestock app. And it was like, oh, my God. It was like, <laughs> who's building one app that just kind of comes together? And I, and I guess that's where at, at that time that would have been oh, 2019-ish. And it kind of felt like surely a, a John Deere or someone like that will just grab all of these apps and go, okay, you're coming into our dashboard. and Make, yeah. it, make it easier, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's not that easy, but it should be, right? That 
you pull this stuff together and things just talk to each other. But I, I think that that side of technology is changing, that compatibility or interoperability, whatever they call it, um, <laughs> where, where stuff just talks to each other because for so long everyone's been so protective of their technology and the data and the information that it collects and that's been, you know, a company or a piece of tech's edge is that only I've got this um, when farmers are actually saying, no, 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 I want this all to talk to each other and I don't want to use five apps, I want to use one, mm. uh, to the point where um, there's now technology and people and companies that um, specialise in bringing all, the, all that information together in one platform and they've built a business just on that. Like, you know, uh, Pear Tree, uh, uh, I think it's uh, uh, like Pear Tree, hats off to them, they've done an amazing job and um, it's something that's really needed for the industry. But I almost think it's a little bit sad that we need to have a company that does that for us because a bunch of other tools can't talk to each other. Yeah, I hope that'll change over time and yeah, we won't have to have so many, many apps to do um, what we needed to do. Hey, it's Nick here, sheep farmer and Rabobank Regional Client Council member. I'm passionate about supporting our local community so we can improve community wellbeing and build strong local economies. My job as a client council member is to help secure funding for regional grassroots initiatives. Those that support education in ag, rural health, sustainability, and help bridge the country-city divide. We've helped organisations like Boys to the Bush, funded school field days like Ag Vision, and held succession planning workshops, just to name a few. If you have an idea to make a difference to regional Australia, go to our website at www.rabobank.com.au and nominate via our community fund. We'd love to hear from you. It, through your PhD, or one of the pieces that you published, an article that you published was around exploring the role of smartphone apps for livestock farmers. So wh- yeah. where did you guys land with that? Besides seeing just how many bloody apps there were for, for <laughs> livestock farmers, which kind of blew my mind when I read that. Oh, I know. And it chops and changes all the time. I was trying to find, um, it, when I first started my PhD, you have to do this literature review and I actually hate reading, which is a problem. I'm not much of a reader. You know, there was lots of papers written about new apps and things that have been developed for farmers, whether it was in horticulture or turf production or in livestock, and it had been written by the groups that had developed those apps. And they were saying how beneficial they were and, um, you know, they're going to be adopted like crazy and um, they were so easy to use. But I'm like, who told you that? Who told you they were easy to use? And and how many farmers did actually adopt them? So I flipped it and thought, well, I'm going to talk to farmers about what they want apps to do for them, what's important to them when they decide to use an app. And and I think a little bit of it wasn't surprising to me and a little bit of it was. Um, But, yeah, things like um, money and profitability weren't really high on the agenda for adopting technology. It was more about know making life easier and simpler and more efficient making more money and profitability is is important for every business but if you're using technology it's to solve a problem so life's a bit easier Mm. that that was a key point and I also looked at um, the age effect because sort of been hearing so much one is that farmers are just not good adopters of digital tech 
you know, grates me. Um, and and that, you know, older farmers don't use or, you know, it, it's harder for them to adopt new technology. And, and I didn't really believe that either. Mm-hmm. So I found that farmers actually were very good with um, sort of smartphones and apps but weren't really using agricultural apps. Um, but that may have been because there wasn't enough relevant, useful agricultural apps out there. Um, and while younger farmers did tend to use um, apps more than older farmers, the actual use of apps in older farms was pretty high. So I just think they're a much more discerning audience and they've seen and heard a lot of stuff over the years, so they're a harder audience to crack. So um, whereas, you know, maybe younger farmers may be able to give things a go a little bit or take on risk a bit easier or they're a bit more um, native to digital tech, Um, but I just think it's a... I think older farmers are more experienced and um, are maybe just the harder audience to to win over. And I also think like in terms of that app uptake, like there's there's that element of risk too. Like if you were to move all your business over, it's like, well, are these startup companies, are they future-proof enough that they're going to exist in a few few years or like where, where do they stand like? Yeah, and sort of that reliability and longevity in these things is, is, is pretty important. Just like Absolutely. it is with cattle as well. So, you know, you want cattle to be happy and healthy and live a long life so that they pay pay dividends back to you as well. And I think we all, we all want that in the technology that we use too. Yeah. Now let's talk about um, South Australia because one thing which I reckon is cool about South Australia, you guys have is it quite an innovative little state in terms of what's happening over there. I know there was the different like wine programs, but... For you guys, um, one thing, you've obviously got a Vogue ag coming next yeah. year in February to yeah. Yeah. Adelaide, the city of churches, um, yeah. which is pretty exciting. What, what is the startup ecosystem like down there? I'm possibly biased, but I think we've got <laughs> a, fair, a fair buzz and culture around innovation um, in ag tech and in other areas as well. We've had the last sort of um, three or four years, we've had... Um, quite a bit of government support, not necessarily like in funding, there, there has been some, but encouraging and supporting innovation in, in agriculture. We have like the Lot 14 precinct, which is, you know, which has also got stone and chalk in it, where there's a bunch of, you know, startup tech businesses that can work side by side and and grow and, and develop. Yeah, I just think it, it's a cultural thing and, um as well as being supported um, by your by your local government, and I think because South Australia is um, a smaller state in terms of numbers, not just in population, but in probably um, livestock numbers and things as well. I think that kind of forces you to um, work together and be a bit more collaborative, and we're pretty patriotic as well, so we like to sort of support our own and each other, which also helps with driving innovation too. That's um lot fourteen, and then there's lot one hundred. It sounds a little bit cryptic, like it nearly <laughs> like a, a secret club or establishment. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yeah, lot fourteen is like an innovation precinct, and then lot one hundred is like a really cool or called food, wine, and or, uh, 
booze in general. I think um, it's a great little spot where a bunch of, um, in the Adelaide Hills, so Adelaide Hills is quite a sort of foodie, whiny area, and a bunch of so smaller and probably younger people, businesses um, that got together a few years ago um, pre, pre-COVID. And I think it w- was probably maybe longer in the planning than, 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 than we think, but they might not have been able to open a cellar door or a cafe or a restaurant themselves. But, hey, let's all get together and build one big one and make it like a destination. And I just think that collaboration culture in our state is is really strong and um yeah that's just another example maybe i'm happy to take some people there when they come over for a vocab <laughs> yeah sign me up i'll be there i think what, yeah. what's what's so cool about i'll say the the transition now as well to some of these other like startup businesses, but even like the breweries and the distilleries and stuff that are coming out it's like they're ta- their waste products aren't generally like waste anymore it's now that waste is actually now a value-added product and like this whole move to circular and just this progressive mindset um around food and innovation is bloody cool yeah yeah and i think in that lot 100 there's sort of there's an orchard of cerevolo orchards are involved with that as well and like their um some of their fruit goes into making cider and like it's um i just think you have to right and we're all about reducing wastage, about working together, and um, uh, and yeah, I think COVID's probably forced some people to do that too. But um, yeah, South Australia's not not a big place, but we probably punch above our weight as far as that um, food and wine scene goes. That's for sure. Yeah, definitely. Now, I, I want to know. So you've been in ag for a little while now, and a bunch of different roles, and a couple of different degrees to go with you. So, what, why is it that you're still so passionate about it today, and can continue to be involved in it oh no one day is the same um you know just it's I guess it's just just in me I, I think um agriculture as a sector is really innovative it um I mean we've been forced to to do it with battle with changing climates and crazy commodity price fluctuations and you know all that stuff sort of forces innovation um, and resourcefulness and efficiency to happen gosh in my time I mean I've been involved in agriculture like for for 25 years but um, as far as farming goes probably more like 15 years Um, if I if I count when I was the agronomist slash girlfriend on the farm it's 15 years and in that time I've seen the two driest periods on record and not just dry years periods but like a drought generally isn't just one year um, I've seen the wettest year on record I've seen um, the highest commodity prices the lowest commodity prices I've seen a global financial crisis pandemics gosh like the rise the rise of the social license to farm like that when I was at university we didn't sort of even cover that um, whereas it is now in a lot of the curriculum, like we, we talk about that. I guess if, if we've gone through 15 years of that, we've come out the other end and we've still got a half-decent business, um, then um, I think we're in it for the long haul. But, gosh, if that's what's happened in the last 15 years, I don't know what's going to happen in the next 15 years, but um, we're, we're, in, we're strapped in for the roller coaster ride and, and um, um, we also love where we farm and being able to raise a family in that environment as well. Yeah, no, when you're running through those 15 years, it's like, Jesus, even just the last five, it's pretty wild, isn't it? But yeah, um, 
as you say, still still operating and still opportunities there. So, Penny, you get the chance to go back to high school and chat to your 10 students about careers in agriculture. Yeah. Why would you tell them that they should look at a career in ag? I just think there's a there's a huge diversity in roles. It's not just being a farmer on a farm. There's just a, a massive array. And you, and you don't even have to study ag science to have skills that are useful in, in agriculture. There's lots of training opportunities, both on the job, you know, all the way up to university. And I, I mentioned it before, but you've got opportunity, well, I think you do, to um, build and change your roles whether that's on the farm or um, in a consultancy role or teaching or something, I think, um, yeah, there is the ability to be agile and change if, if you're not enjoying your job or things change and your circumstances change. It's quite quite transferable. And then we're like on a real tipping point of pretty exciting technology advances. Like it, it, it's happening already, but um, it, it, it's changing the face of agriculture and the way that we're perceived. So... I, I think um, that's pretty exciting when when younger people get to see the technology and science that goes into agriculture and even on the farm itself that changes people's perception of, of the sector. Well, and I think it's such a big thing, isn't it? Like even your son with his interest in robotics and things, it's like, well, actually, we're not that far off of having, yeah, like there already is robotic tractors, the swarm farm tech, et cetera, that's out there. Like it's, yeah, how do you take that? that interest and imagination and go, yeah, well, absolutely you can do that, but why don't you actually look at doing it in agriculture because there's so much opportunity. Yeah, yeah. And and to be honest, uh, even at 10 years old, my, my son's aware of that and um, he knows that his skills will be useful in agriculture one day. Um, but at the moment he just doesn't want to open gates. Um, <laughs> the pressure. There's also lots of jobs, like the ag sector, it's booming, you know, and it's all over the media that, oh, there's heaps of jobs in ag, you know, from, from you know, I suppose almost like no skill kind of jobs right up to um, CEO level um, jobs. There's lots of opportunity. So I think that's good and, and there's um, no issue of... Um, location or distance either so you know if you move to a rural community for some reason and you want a job somewhere else you you don't necessarily have to move anymore so um i think and again COVID's helped with that but um yeah those sort of things aren't issues anymore or barriers for people to move move into a rural community definitely now one other question i've got and this is you can answer it with a question um what's a question that you'd like me to ask a future guest on the podcast with, with a few of my roles uh we work in moving towards sustainable farming systems and, and that means different things to different people so um and we've got massive frameworks um for this sort of stuff now and and i'm a big advocate for that don't get me wrong but what does sustainable farming actually mean yeah, I think we're building this stuff for the consumer and um, we're building some some great frameworks for farmers and industries to work towards. But, yeah, I'd like to pose that question to somebody else, maybe somebody that doesn't actually work in that space. Mm. No, I will, um, I'm trying to think who I've got coming up. I've got some interesting bits and pieces. Like, yeah, I'm doing some stuff with the organics conference and so it might actually be really 
an interesting space to pose those questions to to some people there. Yeah, that would be cool, actually. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, Penny, thank you so much for coming on for a chat. I think you've had such a cool and varied career and just another example of yeah, what's available in ag and, and also, too, that you don't just have to do kind of one thing either. I think, yeah, what you do is awesome. So thanks yeah. for coming on for a chat. Thanks, Ollie. It's been great. Well, that's it from us for another week. Next week, we're heading out to Dubbo. We're going to sit down with the guys from Little Big Dairy. It is also um, National Organic Month, so we're going to be doing a little bit about that on our social. So jump on over there, check it out, and um, we'll have a bit of a teaser for Campbell's episode on there as well. If you're not part of our Humans of Agriculture community group on Facebook, search Humans of Agriculture, our community, and you'll see a few updates in there. Cheers, guys. Have a good week. Stay safe, stay sane, and I look forward to chatting next week.